As we continue our study through this uh, topic, understanding biblical change, and I hope it's uh, been a help to you uh, so far. And again, a couple of goals in this is one that we learn to be able to just think for our own spiritual lives and um, be a benefit to our own growth in Christ. But if you if you will pay attention to these things and process them, this will be a way for you to help others which is the really part of a responsibility of being a member of a local church is that we are committing to help one another grow in Christ and to continue following after him. And so um, the Christian life is not just about me and my walk with Jesus uh, because as Brian says, as a child of God, I'm not an only child and the local church highlights that. And we're actually in this together. So understanding biblical change is not about me growing to be more like Christ and just me, but it's how can I help one another grow? And how can we be um, gifts to one another within the body of Christ? So I hope that you'll process these things in those two ways for me personally and for me as a member of others to help one another grow in Christ. So uh, just by way of review, a couple of things, Uh, of course... Uh, We learned in Romans chapter 8 that God's eternal and unbreakable promise is that he is going to glorify his children with his son. That, That is, we know that as a fact. That's what God is going to do. And so as a result of that promise, we know that change and transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ, that's the agenda for every true believer. If you're a child of God, that's his agenda, is to make you more like Jesus Christ. So the question that we're asking is, okay, so how does that actually come about in my life? Well, we learned that uh, Colossians 2 teaches us that that change and that transformation doesn't come about by way of legalism, you know, performance of trying to keep up with man-made rules. It doesn't come about through asceticism, which is a personal discipline and rigorous lifestyle of just Uh, trying to feel bad about your sin and self-inflicted guilt. It doesn't come about through uh, mysticism, right? If if you have good spiritual experiences, that doesn't bring about true transformation in our life. All those have an appearance of wisdom, Paul says, but none of them actually can do anything to uh, control the flesh. So what we've been seeing, based on Colossians 3, is that um, true spiritual growth is rooted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's lived out in our union with him through daily repentance and faith. And if you'll keep that in mind, that's kind of our overarching theme of this whole study, that um, because of the fact that you have died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, you live in union with him, every day is lived out by faith and repentance, and you find that spiritual growth taking place. So it's not an immediate thing that happens all of a sudden. No, it's a lifelong process and a journey that we're on. And this daily repentance and faith is seen um, by putting off the ways of the old man, uh, by being renewed in the spirit of our mind, and by putting on the ways of the new creation that we are in Christ. So the old man has been put off, so we put off the ways of the old man. We allow our minds and our hearts to be renewed by the word of God. And as we do so, we become more and more like the person that God has declared us to be in Christ. And so to begin the process, a couple weeks ago, we started to look at, in particular, identifying the fruits of our lives and evaluating uh, those things. And where is it that my life is departing from the new life that Christ has in me? And I need to confess and forsake those things. 
But we learned last week that our words and our actions, our reactions, don't just come out of nowhere. They're actually a product of something deeper, of our heart. We talked about the inner man. It's the real you. And so what we need to do is not just identify and address the the things that we do and we say, the things that are on the surface of our life, the things that other people may experience, we can't just stop there. We have to go actually a little bit deeper and address what's going on in our desires, our affections, the things that we love, the things that we think about. And so we said, uh, the idea is this, that you do what you do and you say what you say because you love what you love. There are affections and desires of your heart that actually are bringing about those words and those actions in your, in your life. And so uh, last week we discussed the idea of recognizing the root, and one of those roots is a love for self, that under every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry. There is a false worship. There is an inordinate love and desire. We treasure something other than Christ. And when we do that, we will pursue uh, sinful things. So in learning to put off and having our minds renewed, we have to be ready to address the ruling lusts of our heart. What is the dominating desire of your heart? Again, James chapter 1 and verse 14 tells us that everyone is drawn away and enticed uh, by, everyone is drawn away by his own desires. So each of us have our own unique set of desires that tempt us and draw us away from Christ. We, we looked at some of those categories of desires. It's really helpful for you to think through what's the dominating desire, the ruling lust of your heart. Is it the lust of the flesh, a desire to experience something, to do things? Is it a desire for pleasure? Maybe it's a lust of the eyes where you have a desire just to have more things and more possessions. Maybe it's a pride of life where you have a desire to be a certain kind of a person, to be recognized, to give, uh, to have prestige, for people to give you status. All of these things are working in our hearts against the work that God is wanting to do in us. And our flesh is pulling us to go after the desires of our heart, whereas God wants us to follow after the desires of the Spirit. And if we don't pay attention to the idolatry that is deep in our hearts, then we're never going to actually deal with the sinful behavior in our life. And that's why we say that when we fail to address our desires, we might adjust our behaviors without ever dealing with the idolatry. So the root issue is, who or what are you worshiping? And biblical change begins when you learn to identify those ruling lusts, those dominating desires of your heart. But what I want us to see today is that there's actually a twofold problem in us. It's that what we desire and what we worship and what we love and what we treasure actually stems from something even deeper. And that is what we know and what we believe to be true about God. So your biggest problem, my biggest problem, isn't that I'm an angry person or that I'm a lazy person or I'm a manipulating kind of a person or that I'm a liar or a cheat. That's all fruit that comes out from a love for myself and idolatry, but all that stems from a wrong view of God. And it's ultimately unbelief that is the root of all the sin issues in my life and in your life. So think about this. We were created as human beings to desire, to worship, to love, and to treasure God above all things. 
So idolatry then is an indicator that something in our relationship with and our understanding of who God is and what he is like is not right. When I'm idolatrous, it's because I don't really understand and know who God is. And so this wrong view of God helps us understand that under every act of idolatry is actually the sin of unbelief. When we think of unbelief, think in terms of what you think and what you know, what you believe and what you trust as true. It's what you have anchored your life in. So behavioral sin, negative emotions, it comes when we don't desire God above everything. That's idolatry. But idolatry comes when we don't know and trust God above everything. So that's why we would say it this way, that you do what you do and you say what you say because you love what you love. But you love what you love because you believe what you believe about God and his word. That is the fundamental issue of my life and your life, is what do you believe, what do you know, what do you embrace as true about God? So we're using the illustration of a tree. Okay, so our life is is like a tree and um, it is rooted in something. And what we need to understand is that there is a bedrock that is true for all of life. No matter who you are, where you're from, no matter what your personality is, there is one thing that is always constant. And that is God and what he has said. Isaiah 40, 1 Peter chapter, uh, or 2 Peter chapter 1, we know that... um, that the word of God stands forever, right? The flower withers and fades away, but the word of the Lord, it will stand forever. It's the one constant that you can always look to. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter what other people are doing. It doesn't matter what's happening in this world. There is one thing that never changes, and that is God and what he has said. And the question that has to be brought out at every point of my life Big times, little times, what seems to be insignificant times, or what are very significant times, you have to understand and ask yourself this question. What do I know to believe and believe to be always true about God? That's the most significant question at every point in your life. What do I know and believe to always be true about God? Because at every choice of life, you will have one of two responses to the truth. Now the spirit of God that is alive in you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is leading you at all points to rest in and rejoice in and believe in the truth of God. That's the work of the spirit in you. Always drawing your attention to who Jesus is. Always drawing your attention to the word of God and the character of God. But your flesh, we talked about a couple weeks ago, is pulling you to reject God's truth. And instead of rejoicing in God's truth, your flesh is pulling you to rejoice in getting your desires fulfilled. That's idolatry. Okay, so you you can think of it this way, that in every choice of life, you're either going to embrace God's truth and rejoice in that, or you're going to reject it and follow your flesh. There's really only two choices at every point of life. You will either embrace and rejoice in God and what he has said, or you're going to reject it. That's the fundamental issue of every single one of our hearts. So the reason I become idolatrous is actually because I've been deceived about truth or I've rejected the truth about God. 
right? Sinful fruit in my life is rooted in the fact that I've either ignored or I'm ignorant of what's always true about God. Now let let that kind of settle into your heart and mind. Sinful fruit in my life is rooted in the fact that at that point, I have either rejected, I've, I've, I've just totally ignored what's true about God, or I'm ignorant of it. I've never actually come to an understanding of who God is and what he is like. Now, is that not a radical view of sin? A lot of times we think of sin as, oh, eh, little mistake here, that was a bad decision, that probably wasn't the best choice I've ever made. Or you could say, you know, I've actually just ignored or I'm ignorant of who God is and what he is like. As a result, my desires are toward me and my flesh, and that's why I ended up doing what I did and saying what I said. Now, if you're a Christian, and you're looking at this, and it's like, okay, idolatry is rooted in unbelief. As a Christian, like, I don't want to think of myself as an unbeliever, right? That's what we call people who don't follow after God. They're unbelievers. But think about this. While most of us would happily support a doctrinal statement, right? We believe that God is one and that he exists in three persons as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we believe that Jesus Christ is God. And there's this confessional belief. Our problem isn't so much our confessional belief as much as it is our functional or practical belief. And that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking so much about your confessional belief as much as we're talking about your functional belief, okay? So um, I think, uh, I'm looking at the order of service. Yeah, this morning, we will, together we will sing, behold our God. And we'll sing and, and we'll celebrate the wonder of the sovereignty of God. And together as a congregation, we will confess that we believe in the sovereignty of God. But when I get fearful, worried, I get all uptight and anxious about what's going on and circumstances aren't turning out the way I had expected them to, I am now operating in a functional disbelief in what I confess to be true about God. So while I say that God is sovereign, in reality I'm living in unbelief because I'm all worried and uptight. Yeah, I think God's sovereign, but I'm not really sure. I'm either... I'm I'm ignoring the sovereignty of God and not rejoicing and resting in that. I'm actually questioning it. That's functional unbelief. You can think of it this way, that a belief not practiced is not really a belief at all. You you can say you believe something, but until you actually act on that belief, it's it's just confessional. It's not functional belief. Uh, Let's let's take this to a totally different realm here, okay? So uh, April Fool's jokes. How many of you like to play April Fool's jokes on people? Oh, good. (laughs) These are my friends. (laughs) Uh, The rest of you are the gullible ones then. (laughs) No. uh, So so if if you fall for an April Fool's joke, you have believed a lie. If you don't believe the lie, you're not going to fall for the joke. Right? So if I walk up to someone and I say, hey, you've got a spider on your shoulder. If they believe me, how will they respond? They're, they're going to flinch. They're going to do something to get the spider away, right? If they don't believe me, they're not going to respond to me. That's, that's belief 
in a function right there, right? There's, there's a reason why you don't see me walking down the hallway smacking my head against the cinder block. I really don't believe that's a good thing, okay? Now, if you walk in and you see me doing that, you would, one of two things are true. Either Scott's absolutely lost his mind or he believes that's a good thing, right? Because we act on what we believe to be true. And if we're not acting on it, no matter what we say, we're living in a functional unbelief. So I, I don't like to think of myself as someone that believes lies, but every time I ignore or I'm ignorant of the truth of God, then I am embracing and rejoicing in something other than truth. And that something other than truth will always be a lie. So if I'm fearful and worried, I believe the lie that actually God's not in control. And I'm not rejoicing and resting in the reality of his sovereignty. I'm living in an unbelief. Um, if I live uh, manipulating people, because I, if I can put everybody in the right place, then I can get what I want, then what's that revealing? It's revealing an unbelief. I don't believe that God is wise and that he is in control and that his plans for me are always good. And I'm believing the lie that if life is actually going to work for me, then I need something other than God to take over. That's a lot different than just saying, I have a manipulating problem. (laughs) It's saying, I I really don't trust God to do this. So I'm going to take over. That's the reality of sin in my life. So in the face of trial, in the face of temptation, James chapter 1 actually reveals to us, this is what's going on. That a person that considers it all joy when he falls into different temptations and testings is because he knows something to be true about God. That God is using this to grow your faith. But a person that looks at the testing and the trial, verse 13 and 14, says, I don't like this, and he tries to bail out, it's because he's drawn away by his own desires. And he's following after what he wants. Okay, so in in, in any choice of life, there's, there's really those two choices. If you have a faulty view of God, either you haven't taken the time to get to know God like you should, or you're just flat out rejecting and ignoring what you know to be true about God, then what happens? You're living in unbelief. You're setting aside or ignorant of God and his word. What happens? Your desires and your affections become idolatrous. You become all about you. And instead of thinking on who God is and what God says, you start thinking, hmm, what do I want? What can I do in this situation? You know, what, what should, what, or who should I be? How should people be treating me and recognizing? What, what's going to make me most happy? You see, when my, when my belief system is off, then life becomes all about me. And as a result, the fruit in my life is sinful. Trace it back. You do what you do and you say what you say because you love what you love. And you love what you love ultimately because you believe what you believe about God and his word. But the other side of it is this, that when you embrace and rejoice in what's always true about God and what never changes, you meditate on who he is and what he is like, you submit to that and you rejoice in those things, then your desires and your affections are then directed toward him. And instead of thinking about me and what I want and what I deserve and what's going to make me happy, I'm thinking, who is God and what is he like and what has he said in his word? That now becomes the driving affection of my heart. 
Do you see that the real issue of your life and my life is not anger or fear or greed or lust or dishonesty? When we ignore God and what he has said or we're ignorant of God and what he has said, we live in functional unbelief. Our desires move toward a love for self and our will will respond accordingly. And what I want us to see is this has actually been Satan's plan of attack since the very beginning. Think with me back to Genesis chapter 3, okay? The serpent was more subtle than all the creatures, right? And here is Eve there. And what does Satan come to Eve and say? He attacks her belief system immediately. Has God said? Did God really say that? Then he goes after really what does she believe that God has said and is she embracing it? And he draws her to believe a lie. You won't die. Don't listen to God. And when Eve was deceived, when her belief system was off and embracing a lie, remember what Genesis 3 says. She saw that the tree was good for food lust of the flesh. It was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. And it desired to make one wise, pride of life, with a faulty view of God. Her affections are going in the wrong direction. Desires drawn away from God and his truth. As a result, she took the fruit and she ate. Okay, trace it back. You do what you do and you say what you say because you love what you love and you love what you love because you believe what you believe about God and his word. It's Satan's plan of attack from the very beginning. Distort your belief system. Either ignore or be absolutely ignorant of what God has said and who he is. Look, look there in, uh, in James chapter 1. And I, and I, want, you to, I want you to see how James uh, plays this out for us. We looked last week at verse 14. And 15, that we are tempted when we're drawn away by our own unique desires. And when that desire has come together with our will that conceives and brings forth sin, and that sin brings forth absolute destruction and death. So in the middle of talking about being tempted, he he lets us know that when we sin, it's because we've been drawn away by self-centered desires. But notice what he says then in verse 16. Do not be what? Deceived. Don't be deceived, my beloved brother. In other words, why is it that you're tempted and drawn away by your desires? Because you've been deceived at some level. Deceived about what? Have you been deceived about the badness of your sin? Or deceived about the consequences of your sin? Have you been deceived about how shameful the sin is? No, 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 that's not what he says. You're tempted and drawn away by your own lusts when you are deceived about what? Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. See, our desires are drawn away because we've been deceived about the nature and the character of our God. That's what James is helping us understand here, that what you know and believe to be true about God is the root issue for everything in your life. 
So I might say that I believe God is good and he is wise and sovereign. But if I say I believe that, then why do I fear and despair when life doesn't go according to my plan? There's a functional unbelief. You you might say that, yes, I believe that God loves me with an unconditional love. Then why are you so insecure and fearful? You say that you believe God is all-sufficient. Then why do you think that you have to have something more than you have right now in order to be happy? You say you believe that God is holy and pure, but why are you so passive with allowing things that are blatantly sinful and dishonoring to God to just come into your life? Do you see how we often function as unbelievers? And that unbelief creates a wrong desire which produces sinful fruit in our life. So this is the point where we're we're talking about this root system anchored in God's truth. This is the point that we're understanding what it really looks like to be renewed in your mind. This is where the transformation begins to take root in your heart and in my heart. As Colossians 3 and verse 10 says, Paul tells us that the new creation that you are in Christ, it's being renewed after the knowledge of your creator. Knowing and believing what is always true about God is where the transformation will begin to take place in your life. And this renewing thing is a process Right? Getting to know God is not something that just happens overnight. It's something that begins when you come to faith in Christ and it starts a journey of growing in knowing the wonder and the beauty of your God to the point that it becomes the most central reality of your life and everything is dictated and dominated by what you know and believe to always be true about God. It becomes the one thing that you rejoice in. It becomes the thing that you anchor all of your life in. It drives your affections and the more we are rooted and anchored in knowing our creator it changes us from the inside out this is the renewal process so so what we're saying in this is this reality that we live as idolatrous people because we actually don't know God like we should we don't worship God because we don't really know him As John Stott put it, this quote was really helpful, that there can be no doxology without theology. Doxology is just a big word for worship, right? There can't be worship if you don't know God, right? It's not possible to worship an unknown God. All true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture and arises from our reflection on who He is and what He has done Hence, the indispensable place of Scripture in both public and private devotion. It is the Word of God which calls forth the worship of God. If I want my affections and my desires to be in line with God, I must know who this God is. And that doesn't happen on accident. It requires time and intentionality on my part and on your part to open this book and read and let the Spirit of God reveal to you the glories of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
That's where the renewal and the transformation takes place. So we can say it in this way. You'll never love and worship someone you don't know. You'll never love and worship someone you don't know. And I I might add to that, you won't ever know someone that you don't spend time with. You can't get to know someone if you're not spending time with them. You might be able to hear other people talk about them. But if you're not personally spending time with them, it's hard to really get to know them. So much to the point that you actually love them and worship. That's how it is with with God. And what we're going to see over the next couple weeks as we dig in a little bit more to this idea of having our mind renewed is this. If I'm going to love and worship God above all things, I must know him as he's revealed himself and anchor my life to that. So do you see how true biblical change is? It, it, it has nothing to do with you and I following man-made external rules. It has nothing about how self-disciplined we are or aren't. It's not about having some special mystical experiences that makes us kind of push us into spiritual victory. True biblical change flows from an intentional commitment on the part of the child of God to get into the word of God and to get the word of God into his heart and to his mind, to have the spirit of God do a work that convinces you of the truth so much that what you know to be true about God, you begin to actually rejoice in it and you love it. And so what you believe transfers to what you really love. And it comes out in a life of love and joy and peace and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. That's the fruit that only the Spirit can produce. And that only happens when you're anchored to what the Spirit of God is revealing to you in the Word. Again, you do what you do and you say what you say because you love what you love and that's all rooted in what you believe about God. Now, again, when I say believe, I'm not talking about intellectually agreeing. That's confessional belief. I'm talking about adoration and delight and desire and rejoicing in who he is and what he is like. It's not just receiving a theological education. This is learning about your God and knowing who he is and embracing that truth in a way that changes you from the inside out. What we're talking about here is what, what Jesus said God was doing. He was seeking for himself true worshipers. This is becoming a worshiper of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, it's all to exalt the wonders of who he is and what he is like. So this is, this, if you, if you want to take this as a, uh, a framework for how to uh, counsel yourself, how do you help yourself spiritually? Right? If you know you're just in a funk and there's sin issues going on in your life, you're like, what do I do? Well, why don't you stop and identify, okay, what's the sinful fruit? Identify the ruling desire and the lust and find out where that is coming from in your belief system. This is a, an exercise that I use to counsel myself. I, I pull out this tree Often, In fact, in my office where I'm sitting at my desk, I can look and there's a picture of a tree because 
for me, it just help, helpful. It's like whatever's going on in the fruit of my life is rooted in something much deeper. And I'm always thinking, what's the sin? What's the desires? What's my belief? What do I know to be true about God? What am I rejoicing in? And how am I living? It's, it's always going down to the root and following it back up. So let's, let's do a little, maybe an exercise here. Let's identify a sin uh, that... that um, no, no one in here would deal with, but those people out there, right? Um, let's let's say we uh, we're dealing with maybe maybe I just I'm finding myself and other people are actually telling me hey, you're really aggressive, you're really abrasive, and you're really pushy about things. Okay, I need to identify that as okay. That doesn't match up to love and joy and peacefulness and gentleness, right? Okay, so I can, I can identify that as something that needs to change in my life. So how do I get from being an aggressive, pushy, kind of a abrasive person to someone that is gentle and peaceful? Well, I need to go down a little bit deeper and go, okay, what's the driving desire? Because the reason I'm aggressive and pushy and abrasive on people is because something in my heart I want. Maybe, maybe it's a pride of life. I, I want people to respect me, and so I'm just going to push myself up there and make sure that they see me. Or, or maybe it's an issue of I really want, I want people to, to know that my way is actually the best way, and my opinions are valid, and, and, and so I'm just going to make sure that everybody sees it and hears it and they agree with me, right? Again, that's, that's an idolatry thing. I, I, it's a pride of life. I love me and my opinions, and I want other people to agree with me, so I'm going to push myself on them in that way. Okay? But it goes deeper than that. Because God has said things in his word, and there are things that are always true about him that I'm, I'm ignoring or I'm ignorant of. So let's think about what has God said. Well, Philippians 4 talks about that your gentleness should be known to all men. Um, Jesus himself says, I am meek and lowly in heart. So if our Savior is of that quality, and that's what I want in my life, and if he's, if he's uh, saying that the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, I, I want that in my life. So what needs to happen? Well, I need to stop living in just confessional belief that, yeah, Jesus is gentle, he's meek and lowly, and he wants that of his children. No, I need that to be transforming me. So what does that happen? I, I need to spend time meditating on who God is. What does it mean that he is meek and lowly in heart? And as I meditate on that truth over days, weeks, for some of us, it might take months, <laughs> possibly years of the spirit of God illuminating our understanding of the gentleness of our own savior and as we know who he is and what he is like that begins to change our desires and it changes the way we live this is this is the kind of work that sanctification is on our part we have to do this identification of our sinfulness and our desires and our unbelief so that God can begin to work these things from the inside out. So, so take this, maybe this little uh, um, tool to counsel your own self, whether it's lust or anger or manipulation or 
abrasiveness, whatever it might be in your life, use this. Identify the sin, figure out what the ruling desires are, and identify the points of unbelief in your life and ask God to change you from the inside out. True belief will only come as we spend much time interacting with God and his word. And over the next couple weeks, that's what we're going to talk about, is the simple tool, and it's called meditation. (laughs) We're going to learn how meditation is the means by which our mind is renewed and the spirit of God changes us more and more into the image of Christ. And uh, so we'll we'll look at that. But I, I hope you see how this... This kind of points, this true change opens the way to seeing progress in your life, right? The answer is growing in a trust and belief in God. It's not a quick, easy fix, right? No bones about that. It's a journey of getting to know God. And uh, with every step of recognizing and embracing and rejoicing in the truth of who he is and what he has said and what he is life, it, it brings life, it brings light, it brings freedom, So, although it sounds simple, simple's not always easy, but here's the simple thing. Get to know God. Get to know God. And learn what it means to love him and rejoice in who he is and allow his spirit to transform you. So God, I pray that you'll help us this week to anchor our thoughts and our desires in who you are and what you are like Lord, I ask that you would give us the willingness to discern these things in our own life, that we'd identify and confess and forsake the sin, but we'd move down deeper and look to see what ruling lust and affections are in our hearts and drive us to see what is it that we are either ignorant of about you or we're absolutely ignoring. And so, Lord, um, as... As believers, we say we believe, but help us in our unbelief. We don't want to just simply be confessional believers, but we want to function as those that rest in and rejoice and embrace what is always true about you. And we pray that uh, you would help us in that for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.